From WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, I'm Byron Williams, and this is The Public Morality. Today, on The Public Morality, I speak with author Ethel Morgan Smith about the year 1619 and its impact on African-American literature. That's coming up on The Public Morality. Welcome to a new season of The Public Morality. August commemorated the 400th anniversary that brought slavery to the United States. When a ship arrived at Port Comfort, an English colony in eastern Virginia, bearing a cargo of 20 human beings from Africa in 1619, this, as many have offered, was America's true founding. 157 years before we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, and 168 years before we, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, there was slavery woven into the fabric of a nation not yet born. For the remainder of 2019, using the theme 1619, the public morality will periodically feature subjects that demonstrate the myriad ways African Americans have had to navigate through the insanity of slavery in order to reach the present moment. Today, our focus is literature. For 400 years, African Americans, through written and oral tradition, have been telling their story. Today, we welcome back Ethel Morgan Smith, former associate professor at West Virginia University. Smith was the recipient of the prestigious Fulbright Scholarship, as well as the author of several books, including... Whence Cometh My Help, the African-American Community at Hollins College. Ethel Morgan Smith, welcome back to The Public Morality. I am thrilled to be here. It's my pleasure. Mm -hmm. Let's begin uh, with the premise that that begins with a group of people being kidnapped uh, and placed into what I'm defining as a forced migration system. Uh, What impact does that have? on telling your story going forward? You, when you say, you mean slavery? Or yes, you mean yes, death? yes. Oh, uh, slavery is very powerful. I, I, spent, um, I spent some time in Ghana uh, in 2014, and to go to the uh, slave castle on the, on the coast there, it, is, it changes you. It changes you. You go into those dungeons. You see where they had two dungeons for the women, one for the regular women, and then they had a tiny one for the women who fought back. So you go in there. There are no windows. There's nothing. There's just cobblestone and 400 years of stench. You you just smell it. So that night, our hotel was by the ocean. And you could hear the ocean. I never slept. I, all, I felt like I was hearing the scream of those women. Uh, we were told that the soldiers often raped the women. And if they turned up pregnant or showed that they were pregnant before the next ship 
campaign uh, to bring them to this to, uh, across the Middle Passage, they just threw them in the ocean. As I say it to you now, uh, chills all over me. I can never forget that image and understand that. It, 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 you know, you're in these castles, and you can imagine upstairs. The, the businessmen or smoking and drinking and eating and making business deals. And downstairs, there are people screaming and screaming because they've come through the door of no return. I, I will never be the same after that experience. Is, is that the kind of thing you're looking yeah, for? Yeah, no, absolutely. Because I'm, I'm, I'm thinking because that's the beginning. And so that, that is the beginning. And so now you have a people come here, go, you know, and it starts there. That's going to have an impact on 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 how we tell our stories. It's going to have an impact on how we tell our stories and how we see ourselves, uh, which is really important. And it seems to me, I taught at West Virginia University for 24 years, and before that I taught at Virginia Tech. And what I saw uh, was African-American students not so interested in that history uh, as a lot of African-Americans are. They say things like, we just want to forget about that and move forward. And I go, you can't forget about that. And I wish for them that experience to be able to go to Ghana and it would change them. Um, Or to go to a lot of places, for an example, it would change them. Uh, But we live in a culture that our young people are impacted by and they don't understand the, the, the power of our history and the power of who we are. Uh, and they don't understand the price that has been paid for their privilege. Now, if you would, assess the relationship between the lens that many African-American writers that you've read have and, and what I see as a, as a tension uh, with you know, with the letters, the academy, the mainstream, all of that. Talk about that tension between that authentic lens, this birth, and what you just articulated, and how the dominant culture oftentimes views that work. It, you know what's so interesting? How the outside world, outside of the academy, view the academy. People think of of, of the academy as this liberal haven, and as a matter of fact, it's not. The 24 years I worked at West Virginia University, um, where academic jobs are very hard to come by, uh, you know, obviously the reason I stayed there so long, you get tenure, it gets hard. But I found it to be very conservative. I found it to be sexist, and I found it to be racist. But sexist, you know, in a different way. Sexist if you teach there, work there, and don't have a husband. Many of the people in my department, the white women, who, by the way, have um, benefited from affirmative action more than any of us, uh, they often have husbands for their protection, so they are left alone. I found that I was judged by a different standard. If I got an award, for an example, they would casually say to me, oh, you just got it because you were black, Um, or you just got it because you don't have to deal with a family, Uh, and, and we do. So they always make excuses. It wasn't, oh, my God, congratulations, you got this because you're so deserving, because you do good, valuable work. It was never, ever that. Um, one of the things that helped me 
was when I was a Fulbright scholar in Germany. Uh, I stopped teaching the slave narrative in America. It was too painful for me. You get the handful of African-American students who just wish you would drop dead and stop talking about it, and you get uh, the mostly white students screaming, well, my parents didn't do it. My ancestors didn't do it. We just got here. So I said, none of our ancestors did it. I said, but you benefit from the system that did it. Therefore, the least you can do is to um, learn about it and try to understand it some. But they were often, it was such resistance. So once I got to Germany, and it was the first time actually, maybe perhaps the second time, I taught Beloved. And a student asked me, she raised her hand, and she said, Professor Smith, can you tell me that, can you be sure that there was absolutely no happy slaves? And I had to think about it because, number one, that student and I did not share the same history. And I said, well, we've had some texts here. You can answer that question. Would you have wanted to be a slave? She said, of course not. And I said, well, why would you think anybody else would? Not only would want to be a slave, but be a happy slave. So that was the beginning of my book, uh, Reflections of the Other, Being Black in Germany. Mm-hmm. Hmm. But there is such tension in African-American communities because our culture has expanded so much into the other. You know, for an example, um, in 1964, when the Civil Rights Act came about and Title VII, those laws were designed specifically for African-Americans to help level the playing field. But over the years, Others have come in, and once again, we find ourselves behind the line. The first group to come in, of course, were white women, uh, became the other. And then we had people from other countries uh, became the other. So at the same time, we're moving further and further in the back of the line of progress and success. Uh, That's what I see. And you don't even see um, students understanding that. One of the things that I think our students need, they need uh, some skills about how to handle situations when white students say to them, you just got here because of affirmative action. So I taught my students to say, you did too. It's called white privilege. Mm -hmm. Um, But our students are very not confident. One young woman, I taught for a semester here at UAB when I first got here just to get a feel of it. That would be University of Alabama, Birmingham? Yes, yes. And in the beginning, it was very nice because it was like mostly African-American students, and they were very excited, um, and they yes ma'am you to death, you know. By midterm, they had stopped reading. They they were just like any other students I had taught. So one of them said to me, we were talking about women's rights one day, and one student started talking about me too. And I said, me too is important. But I want you to understand, I want you to tell me one black woman who has gotten one penny from me, too. And she wasn't able to do that. And I think that when I was growing up, and perhaps when you were growing up, I never thought television, for an example, had anything to do with my life. These mm-hmm. young people today think that it has everything to do with their lives. And oftentimes, it's, it's misleading to them. You know, one this woman said, well, if if I want to walk around on this campus nude, 
I, no one should bother me. No one has the right to bother me. And I said, in theory, you're right. In reality, it's not the case. So just to get them out of Me Too, and Me Too, like I said, it has nothing to do with black people, black women, uh, for sure. But they don't see it like that. But at the same time, there's no progress. There's no progress. They don't see the progress because they, they invest in what they see on television, what they see on Facebook, and other means of, of information. Now, so much uh, of African-American literature, this is my perspective, uh, like like African American music, is is a. I think that's exactly right. That what I did, I started when, when uh, after I talked to you, after we did an exchange, I started thinking about it, and I just sort of went back. And of course, the first black woman to publish a poem was um, Lu, um, Lucy Terry, and of course, then there's Phyllis Wheatley, and then we go on um, to some of the other African American women. Um, Francis Watkins, Harper, out of those writers, this is where we got Toni Morrison, Gwendolyn Brooks, Lucille Cliff, Clifton, Nikki. G. This is where we. This, this is the. This is the, the. This is where they grew from. Out of these experiences, in fact, uh, when Nikki Finney, uh, in her acceptance speech for the National Book Awards, one thing that was so lovely about it she invited her ancestors in to sit with them, and she described what they were wearing. And I, I would, every time I hear that, I move to tears. And it was just so beautiful to me. Um, so, you know, we had, June, we had June Jordan, Rita Dove, Tracy Smith, all these people, they were the direct recipients of those earlier women that I just mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl, you know, uh, that's Harriet Jacobs, Sojourner Truth. All of those women paved the way for us as writers today. And and see, and that writing is is, um, largely uh, a sociological critique in that. I remember a pastor said to me one time, if you want to know what's going on with black people at the time, listen to their music. And it's also, could you not say the same, like listen to their narratives? If you want to know what's going on with black listen people. Listen to their narratives. That's exactly true. Listen to their narratives. You know, it just goes on and on as, as we talk, you know, and then we go into the area of, of another time period. We go into uh, the uh, Harlem Renaissance, uh, you know, uh, Zoranelle Hurston. Her work is a direct result of slavery. It's just a different time. Um, I call these, in Germany, I taught a class called the New Slave Narratives, and that was like Toni Morrison's Beloved and also Tar Baby, which is a, a you know, takes place on a plantation, mm-hmm. a uh, sugar cane plantation. Um, we got Maya Angelou. We got Gloria Naylor. Uh, we got Lorraine Hansberry. Uh, and then... What I do finally, in terms of right, I go into the Great Migration. And it's so interesting. I'm in a book club here. And uh, when it was my turn to choose a book, I chose The Warmth of Other Sons. Now, these are educated white people, uh, doctors, lawyers, whatever, you know, mostly retired, uh, and some not. They had never heard of the Great Migration for more than six million. You know, and we hear that term all the time with regard to the Holocaust. You know, that's so familiar to them. But the Great Migration, 
And what was interesting about it, several several of them were angry that they had never heard of it. Um, but now that that great migration has reversed, you got these black people who went to Detroit, who who went to Chicago, who went to Harlem. They are now coming back to the South uh, because. It, it costs less to live, number one. The politics has changed, the main thing. costs less to live. And um, the weather is probably better for a lot of them. And, you know, if their people haven't died, they still have people, you know, folks in the South kind of thing. So between 1915 and 1970, you had the other great migration. After 1970, things turned around again and started to change. Yeah. So, so what I hear you saying is that, you know, We've had, you know, African American literature has had these these myriad voices, you know, whether it's Phyllis Wheatley as you mentioned, um, Harriet Wilson, uh, our nig, uh, our nig, that's exactly right. Pa- but, uh, but, pa- Paul Lewis Dunbar, but, but let me just say this: what I hear you saying is that all of these writers, even up to the present moment, are even mm-hmm. though the mediums are different, they're still connected to this narrative that we first began our conversation that goes back to 1619. That's exactly true. That's exactly true. Yeah. Uh, and it, it's just, it, it's amazing. In spite of all the awfulness that's going on in this country, we're still here and we're still making progress. Black people are publishing books. Black people are making music. Black people are producing plays. You know, we, we, it's still here. I just read um, Colson Whitehead, Nick, the Nickel, Nickel Boys. Um, all of this wouldn't have happened um, 30 years ago. You know, we had just we had Maya Angelou publishing books, uh, Tony Morrison, and maybe Alice Walker. But now it's just you can pick up New York Times best, you know, and we're there. We're there. You, you know, you sort of touched on this earlier, but I, but I, I'd like you to dig a little deeper. I, you know, I'd be remiss if I didn't also address specifically for African American women in literature. There's the mm-hmm. uh, there's the racism that, that that we've talked about, but but isn't what there's also a misogyny that's an external misogyny, and I would dare say an internal misogyny. Could you could you also address that? So when you say misogyny, you mean the, the sexism that we encounter and the sexism that we impose on ourselves. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm yeah, it happens within okay. within the well, black culture. Yeah, it also happens. Well, go ahead. No, go ahead. No, I was just saying it happens within the black culture, the misogyny within the black culture, and misogyny without. So there's two layers that African seems to me the African American women writers in particular have also had to deal with, in addition to the racism. Oh yes, remember when The Color Purple became a, a film that Steven Spielberg did, mm-hmm. and remember how the black men were marching to uh, because they didn't like it, and most of them had not read it. Remember when Toni Morrison received the Nobel uh, Prize? There were, it was black men who was saying she wasn't deserving of it. Um, yeah. And, you know, they said, we don't like the way Alice Walker portrayed the black male. Uh, and what Alice Walker did to the uh, black male in the color preference speaking, she did something so marvelous with that character. He changed. He changed. Not many people change. And they didn't see that because they didn't read the book. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to even touch that last statement. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, I, I'd like to 
switch gears ever so slightly and talk about an essay, uh, one that I think you're familiar with, that, that uh, back from 1997, entitled, Come and Be Black for Me. Oh yeah, <laughs> I am very familiar with that. Essay. Now I'll te- I'll give you my take, and I'll and, and I'll te- and you tell me what I should have taken. What okay, okay. what I got was a 1997 essay rooted in Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man. That's what I got. Well, I'm honored <laughs> that you think that. Well, Invisible Woman. Got- in this case, Invisible Woman. How about that? <laughs> hey, thank you. That essay started in a very simple way. It was. I, I went to West Virginia in 1993, mm-hmm. and my second year, next year or so after that, I was just amazed at what kind of, what I, the expectation of me, right? So one day I'm just sitting there, and I said, I know, I'm going to take notes on what, what's, gonna, what's happening today. And I just sat there, and I took notes. Um, maybe I took notes for two days, and clearly 1997 was before all this social media stuff, right? The, Except you, that you, essay still gets published. Right. So, and I wrote it in um, past tense. And I read it, and it was sort of boring. And so one day in my creative writing class, uh, sometimes I do exercises with my students. So on this particular day, I said, you know what we're going to do? We're going to take your work, and we're going to not write it in the past tense. I said, past tense is the most traditional way of writing. Uh, for an example, the Bible, in the beginning was the word. Mm-hmm. Um, fairy tale, once upon a time. There. I said, we're going to do something different. We're going to take your first five pages, and you're going to write them in present tense, and let's see what happens. And so that day, I remembered I had that little essay. And I said, you know, I was bored by this essay. Let me do something else with it. And I wrote it in present tense. I sent it to a friend of mine, and she said, this is fabulous. This has to be published. And that was the beginning of it. But it's exactly rooted in I just sat there and observed. Any one of us could have done that essay. You could sit there and tell what happened to you in your day. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think that people don't understand what we, meaning we black people, especially black women, encounter on a day-to-day basis. You know, I had this white male who came to my class to give a talk. I don't remember what it was about. And I just remember thinking, wow, he must love his dog. They just adore him. Where I become the black racist bitch. You know what I mean? Excuse my language. But that they write things like that on their uh, on my evaluation, you know. Or, yeah, she made – this was such a hard class. My head hurt all the time from thinking too much. And they thought that was, like, awful. And it was like, well, that's a good thing. Uh, so that, does that answer your question? Yeah, anyone? yeah, no, but, 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 but again, it goes back to our initial statement. Your, your essay is still rooted in that 1619 beginning. It really is. I, here I sit, and here's what you bring, and this is what I do with it. That's exactly true. Yeah. Uh, you know, the only thing, I, of course, I have choices. Because we lived, that was 1997. But the fact of the matter is, so many things are the same when we think of. I don't, I can't think of anything in terms of my writing without thinking of 1619. You, you know, 
my first book was From Whence Comes My Help. Well, I was gonna I, I was gonna ask you about From Whence Comes My Help and and I wanted you to talk about it through that lineage, because that sixteen nineteen. Exactly. Li- <laughs> Go ahead. Exactly. Yeah. So from once coming to my house, the African American community of Holland's College, Holland's University. Now, I get there. I'm thirty seven year old graduate student, and I I felt like I had been thrown in some bad scene from Gone with the Wind. You know, it's just spectacularly beautiful, but all the black people were cooking and cutting and mowing and doing all the work. And all the white people were running around. There was no black faculty. Uh, very few black students at that time. No, no, grad, no black graduate students whatsoever. And I got curious about these people. Um, so I would talk to them. And one woman, one woman who is considered the philosopher, the historian of the community, uh, they had their own little church, and I went to the church, and the preacher didn't like it. You know, he didn't like it. I was in the cemetery. He called me and told me I had to get permission to go into the cemetery. And I said, no one has to get permission to walk around in a cemetery, particularly a black cemetery. But that whole stereotype of the black preacher wanting things to stay the status quo, you know, mm-hmm. because he benefited from the status quo. And... In the 30s, there was one woman, the woman who came forward, Miss Emma Bruce. Uh, she was the only woman, only person in the church who could read or write. They would not allow her to be listed as the church secretary. And so I said, well, how did that make you feel? She said, well, I did the work. Everybody know I did the work. And she said, ultimately, I don't work for silly people. I work for the Lord. I was bowled over by that. <laughs> mm. I mm. was just bowled over at her confidence, her knowledge, and her proud, proud history. Because those young women, the, the founder first came there, and he brought 12 slaves with him. And thus a tradition was born. Young women then began to bring a, the old slave to college with them. And in the beginning, that slave enslaved person would um, sleep in the room with them, empty their slop jars, comb their hair, clean up their puke when they got drunk. We don't think of young women from 1840s to be drinking, but they were. And then at the college group, of course, they had to change. So the idea was to send them up to the old field, and that's ruined land. In Toni Morrison's novel, um, it's the bottom. In Ernest Gaines' novel, it's the quarters. And we know these kind of neighborhoods mm-hmm. today, mm-hmm. the narrows, um, black, you know, nigger town. We know that this kind of language. That, that, that language grew right out of slavery. Send them up to the old field. And after my work there, the people changed their name to the Hollands community because the old field, that term, is rooted in slavery. Um my issue with the college is, okay, it was 1842 in Virginia. There were slaves. Only one young woman from that community has ever graduated from that, college, from that college. That's my beef with them. That community, Byron, did not get running water until 1989. 1989. I was a graduate student there. I thought 
they meant 1889. When I sent that to the publisher, she corrected it and said 1889. And I wrote, I go, no, this is correct. That the college should have been better to those people, but they weren't. They weren't. Hmm. And after the civil rights movement, Mrs. Bruce said, well, they used to come up. They used to come to funerals. They used to come to weddings. We could count them. They used to come up for Christmas celebration. But she said after um, the civil rights movement, and, of course, those original founders and their families had passed on. So the college was no more this plantation-like system. They were outsiders. So the outsiders came and said, oh, we've never had slaves here. There's never been slaves here. And all you had to do is go through the records. It was very clear. Uh, so it, it was a very painful book to write because there was no such thing as nonfiction when I was working on it. So I had to find my way through it. I didn't have any models. Um, but I was determined to do it. And I just kept digging. And one day I got a phone call. Uh, a woman from the Roanoke Times uh, heard about my work, and she published a story. So a lot of the white women who had gone to Holland and still lived in Roanoke sent me pictures, books, photographs, and that was the beginning of opening up the project for me. Yeah, while the people at the college, there were no slaves here. There were no slaves here. No, 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 never. Hmm. Uh, so I just thought of kept, you know, that's what I do with my life. I just sort of keep going on, keep going on, research, research uh, kind of thing. And like I said, we didn't have the research. We didn't have the tools that we have today. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was a very emotional book. And part of the book, I, I um, think of my own mother, who worked for a white family for 50 years uh, and, you know, was often never home with us uh, because, you know, we, my sisters and I, never understood why this white family couldn't, you know, warm their own dinner over, warm their own supper, or, you know, why why did they have to take our mother away from us? We needed our mother uh, kind of thing. If you're just joining us, if you're just joining us, I'm I'm speaking with Ethel Morgan-Smith, author and former associate professor at West Virginia University, and we're talking about the impact of African-American literature since uh, 1619. Uh, one, well, yeah. one of the things I, I wanted to touch on um, in the few minutes we have left, uh, as you well know, we recently lost an intellectual and creative giant, and Toni Morrison. Talk about, you've mentioned her throughout this uh, discussion, but talk about her legacy and, um, and her impact on, and her influence on this whole subject of 1619 and, and, and how she, where is she in that continuum? Oh, she is top of the top of the list. Toni Morrison gave black people permission to not apologize for being black through powerful language and imagery. That is a gift that we didn't have. Uh, I think uh, occasionally I've seen a teacher that says unapologetically black. I like that. I like that. But Toni Morrison gave us that power of language and what it could do, how it could move us, change us. Yeah, we did lose a giant, didn't we? That was Ethel Morgan-Smith. Stay tuned for my closing remarks.
commitment, I believe, that we can transform dark yesterdays of injustice into bright tomorrows of justice and humanity. Let us keep going toward the goal of selfhood, toward the realization of the dream of brotherhood, and toward the realization of the dream of understanding goodwill. Let nobody stop us. I close by quoting once more the man that the young lady quoted, that magnificent black bard who has now passed on, Langston Hughes. One day he wrote a poem entitled Mother to Son. And the mother didn't always have her grammar right, but she uttered words of great symbolic profundity. Well, son, I'll tell you, Life for me ain't been no crystal stat. It's had tax in it. Boards torn up, places with no carpet on the floor, bare. But all the time, I's been a climbing on and reaching landings and turning corners and sometimes going in the dark where there ain't been no light. So, boy, don't you stop now. Don't you sit down on the steps because you finds this kind of hard, but I'm still going, boy. I'm still climbing, and life for me ain't been no crystal stair. Well, life for none of us has been a crystal stair, but we must keep moving. We must keep going. If you can't fly, run. If you can't run, walk. If you can't walk, crawl, but by all means, keep moving. That was Martin Luther King reciting Langston Hughes' poem, Mother to Son. In my conversation with Professor Ethel Morgan Smith, we discussed African-American literature like much of its music was a sociological window using the words of W.E.B. Du Bois, a window into the souls of black folk. Much of the artistic pathos that emanates today from the African-American community can still find its roots in the 20 individuals who were charter members of America's forced migration policy. And yet, paradoxically, it has been the African-American adventure that has served as the key data point by which this country found its moral compass, moving itself ever so close to the elusive, more perfect union. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at byron at publicmorality.org. That's byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. Our archived broadcasts are located at soundcloud.com. Just search for Public Morality. You can also find us on iTunes. And my new book, Solitaire, is available on paperback and Kindle on Amazon. The Public Morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at the Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams. Uh-huh. Uh-huh.